0: Is it possible that God loves some people more than he loves others? We're going to talk about that today and a lot more on BibleCityPodcast.org starting now. This <laughs> Hello, everybody, and thank you for downloading us today. You're listening to BibleStudyPodcast.org. Today is Thursday... August the 20th of 2009, and as always, I'm your host, Toby Logsden, and welcome to our next lesson in our Knowing God series. Uh, we've taken like a month off, maybe a month and a, a few days here off uh, from this study, and we've had, instead, we've been having these messages on the book of the month, which is the message behind the movie, uh, presented by Professor Doug Beaumont. And man, I got a lot of positive feedback from you guys. I'm glad that you guys uh, have seemed to enjoy those lectures. Uh, That's a a fantastic book, and as you guys know, that's our book of the month here on BibleStudyPodcast.org. Hope you guys are having a fantastic week. Uh, It's a very rainy day here in Arkansas. We haven't been getting a lot of rain lately, so it's kind of a welcome change. I actually got up at 5.30 this morning for a prayer meeting. Actually, I got up at 5.00, had to be there at 5.30, and uh, went into this prayer meeting. And, of course, the kids have started school this week, too. So, man, I am lagging this week, and I am just kind of ready for a nap right about now. But that's all right. We've got a great lesson ahead of us today. We're going to be talking about God's love, his uh, omnibenevolence, or his all-lovingness. So, anyway, just before we get started, I want to remind you guys that our book of the month is uh, The Message Behind the Movie, How to Engage with the Film Without Disengaging Your Faith, by Professor Doug Beaumont. He's a personal friend of mine. He's a PhD student and a philosopher at Southern Evangelical Seminary. And uh, man, he's a neat guy and this book is awesome. It will definitely help you uh, as you look for ways to uh, be relevant with your non-believing friends. You know, if you can see a movie with them, uh, something that they would normally just go see anyway, and then if you can use that to bridge to spiritual matters. That's a powerful, powerful tool, and this book is going to show you how to do that, how to do exactly that, and uh, man, I there aren't very many books out there. That I would recommend more than this one because this is really the first book of its kind that's ever been written. So it's good stuff. So anyway, everybody who makes a tax-deductible donation to Clean Slate Evangelical Ministries uh, this month, of course that's our ministry, is going to get a copy of this book sent to you uh, for a tax-deductible donation of $50 or more. So anyway, if you want to make a donation, you can go to BibleStudyPodcasts.org and on the right-hand side you can click on support and make a tax-deductible donation through PayPal. So anyway, uh, we do have quite a lesson ahead of us today, so without any further ado, let's just go ahead and dive right in and start talking about God's omnibenevolence, or his all-lovingness. You know, if you were to ask the average Christian to name one of God's attributes, what do you think they'd say? Well, I think it's pretty safe to say that a lot of Christians, if not most, would say, well, God is love. Uh, That's one of God's primary attributes that's, you know, at least that's recognized widely. And some people take this attribute so far as to see it as negating his holiness, his righteousness, and his justice, and uh, this is what we'd refer to as universalism, the idea that everybody gets saved. Uh, While others will minimize it to such an extent that they believe that God only loves a select few And of course, this is commonly referred to as uh, either particularism, but it's a belief that's really characteristic of the strong Calvinist position. Well, the term that we'd use when we're referring to the fact that God is love is omnibenevolence. Of course, the prefix omni means all, and benevolent means lovingness or goodness toward. In the Old Testament, the basic Hebrew term for love, when used in reference to God, is chesed. And that term is used in reference to his goodness, his loving kindness, or his affection, even. And of course, there are a few Greek words used for the word love, but the Greek word agape, when used in reference to God, of course, that's in the New Testament where Greek is used, uh, but agape refers to his selfless, sacrificial love. So taking all these definitions and understandings into consideration, a general definition of love, when used in reference to God, is that he wills or desires the good of its object. Now, with love being, uh, you know, one of the more widely acknowledged attributes of God, it's not a surprise that we can find support throughout Scripture for the notion that God is love. So let's talk about that uh, to begin with. And it almost goes without saying that the most popular verse for supporting this attribute would probably be 1 John chapter 4, verse 16, which says that God is love. Now remember that whatever God is, is what God has, since his nature is identical to his essence, and that's because God is simple and uncomposed. And again, if you haven't listened to our lesson on God being simple, I know that that makes no sense to you, but one of the lessons is on God's simplicity. If you haven't listened to that one, make sure you listen to it. And so thus, if God is loving by his nature, then he is love by his essence, but First John chapter four verse sixteen is by no means the only place uh, where we find support for this in Scripture. Starting, uh, you know, at the beginning of the Bible, you know, let's let's go to Deuteronomy chapter ten verse fifteen. Here we read, "The Lord set His affection." On your forefathers and loved them, and He chose you, their descendants, above all the nations as it is today. In Isaiah chapter 63, verse 9, the prophet writes In all their distress, He too was distressed, and the angel of His presence saved them. In His love and mercy, he redeemed them. Jeremiah writes that the Lord appeared to us in the past, saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have drawn you with loving kindness. That's from Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 3. God told uh, Hosea to return to his adulterous wife in Hosea chapter 3, verse 1, saying, love her, as the Lord loves the Israelites. In Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 17, we read, The Lord your God is with you. He is mighty to save. He will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. So while it's been asserted that uh, you know maybe God is portrayed in the Old Testament as being sadistic and cruel and unloving, you know obviously that's not the case. This is just a handful of examples out of the Old Testament. Uh, turning to the New Testament, we read, "For God so loved the world that He gave His only unique Son, that whoever believes in Him will not perish but have eternal life." Of course, that's John chapter three verse sixteen. Uh, Paul also emphasizes God's love repeatedly in Romans chapter 5, verse 5. He writes, God has poured out his love onto our hearts by the Holy Spirit, whom he has given us. And he continues in verse 8 of chapter 5, writing that God demonstrated his own love for us in this, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And then in uh, Romans chapter 8, verses 35 through 39, we read, What will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's from Romans chapter 8, verses 35 through 39. And then in Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14, we read, The love of Christ compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And the way that this is worded in the Greek is really neat. Where it says the love of Christ compels us, we can't really tell if Paul's saying uh, the love from Christ or our love for Christ, or maybe, as I think, it means both. And then in uh, Titus chapter 3, verse 4, Paul writes, But when the kindness and love of our God and Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but... Because of his mercy, and then John writes, and, and actually love is a huge theme in John's writings. He writes, "How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God." That's from First John chapter three verse eleven. And like I said, love is a theme throughout John's epistles, and he'd go on to urge his readers, "Let us love one another, for love comes from God. Whoever does not love." Does not know God because God is love. That's First John chapter four verses seven and eight. And finally, he says uh, we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in him. And of course, that's First John chapter four verse sixteen. Well, logically, God's all lovingness flows from several of His other attributes. The fact that God is infinite for example, implies that God must be all-loving. Because he's infinite in his essence, and because God is also essentially love, he's therefore essentially infinite love. His all-lovingness is only limited by his nature, but since he is, by nature, infinite and unlimited, so too his all-lovingness is infinite and unlimited. Now, the strong Calvinist who affirms that God's love is limited to the elect is therefore necessarily limiting God's very nature. This logically and necessarily leads to a view that is similar to finite godism. Well, we affirm that God is love and that God is infinite and unlimited, and thus God is infinite and unlimited love. If you need to listen to that again, go back and listen to that again. That's a a very important point. Secondly, the fact that God is simple, and uncomposed implies that he is necessarily all-loving. Because God is simple, God can't be partly anything. A simple being must be completely and entirely everything that it is. If God is love at all, even to the smallest extent, he must be all loving in accordance with his simplicity. Third, God's necessity implies that he's all loving. A necessary being must necessarily be that which it is. God is love, and therefore, it's logically impossible for God to not love. And so thus, because God can't not love, he must love all. Now, does all this mean that all will be saved? Well no, in fact it renders the possibility of all being saved uh highly, highly, highly unlikely, unfeasible, because even though an all powerful God is capable of doing anything that's logically possible, an all loving or omnibenevolent God is only capable of doing that which is moral. In other words, even though There's nothing logically uh, necessary which dictates that God has to refrain from immoral actions. His all-loving nature does necessarily dictate that God only commit moral actions. It's universally recognized that it's immoral, to force a being with free will to do something which is contrary to their free will, right? And so thus, God works synergistically, not monergistically. In other words, he works together with and not independent of the individual when it comes to salvation. Strong Calvinism affirms that God uses irresistible grace to save only a select few individuals, the elect, regardless of their free will. Well, the fact that God is all-loving negates this possibility for two reasons. First of all, because God, by essence, is all-loving, it's logically impossible for him to love only a few, the elect, because for God to love some but not others would defy his very nature. And this is why John wrote that God so loved the world. Well, who is the world? It's everyone, basically, but it's worth noting that John frequently uses that term specifically in reference to unbelievers. And further, because God cannot be that which he is not by nature, it's impossible for him to love the unbeliever any less than he loves the believer. What God is and what God does, he is and does infinitely. Otherwise, God would not be immutable or unchanging. He'd change the amount of love that he has for an individual when they're born again. This simply is not and cannot logically be the case. Now, the unsaved person cannot receive his love, but that's because of where they stand. It's not because God isn't offering it to them. Secondly, the second problem that comes up is that the doctrine of irresistible grace defies morality since it forces a free individual to do something that is contrary to and independent of their free will. The idea of forced love is impossible. It's an oxymoron. Love that's forced isn't love at all. In human terms, that's what we call rape. An all-loving God can work persuasively, but it's logically impossible and self-conflicting for an all-loving God to work coercively and to force people to love him to force his love on people. And a final implication here, which follows from this last point, actually, is that God's all-lovingness prevents him from bringing individuals into heaven, into his eternal presence, when their will is to be separated from God entirely and forever. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9 affirms that God's desire is that everyone would be saved, but he can't remain consistent. That's the key. He can't remain consistent with his nature and essence and, at the same time, force free individuals to be saved from the penalty of their sin. In fact, what we see here is that universalism and strong Calvinism are actually equally valid. They both involve forcing people to do something which is contrary to the will of free individuals. Actually, they come from the same school of thought. The strong Calvinist affirms that God saves all whom he loves, and the universalist takes that equation, and they insert the fact that God is all loving into the equation. Well, what do you get from that? You get a theology where God saves everyone and dismisses the free will of the individual, insisting that they enter heaven regardless of their desire to uh, or not to do so. So actually, universalism is a tiny step away from strong Calvinism. Now, historically, The Christian faith has affirmed that God is all-loving. From the beginning, Clement of Alexandria wrote that, quote, God himself is love, end quote, and he'd go on to say that, quote, the beneficence of God is eternal, that is the love of God is eternal, and that from an unbeginning principle, equal natural righteousness reached all. Quote. And he continue, writing that quote, the difference of the elect is made by the intervention of a choice worthy of the soul and by exercise. End quote. Saint Augustine wrote that quote, There is accordingly a good which alone is simple, and therefore which alone is unchangeable, and this is God. This good has created all goods. St. Anselm wrote, quote, what goodness could be wanting through which every good exists. Thus, you are just, truthful, happy, and whatever it is better to be than not to be, quote. And Thomas Aquinas, of course, you know, he would have the best things in the world to say about this. Thomas Aquinas wrote the quote, God loves all existing things, for all existing things, insofar as they exist, are good, since the existence of a thing is itself a good and likewise whatever perfection it possesses god's will is the cause of all things it must needs be therefore that a thing has existence or any kind of good only inasmuch as it is willed by god to every existing thing then god wills some good hence since to love anything is nothing else than to will good for that thing it is manifest that god loves everything that exists End quote. Now, if you need to hear that again, that's, that's a very important statement. That's a very important uh, piece of theology. Go back and listen to that if you didn't catch that the first time. And of course, there was a huge emphasis on God's lovingness in the Reformation period. Martin Luther wrote that, quote, true, the malicious devil deceived and seduced Adam, but we ought to consider that soon after the fall, Adam received the promise of the woman's seed that should crush the serpent's head and should bless the people on earth. Therefore, we must acknowledge that the goodness and mercy of the Father who sent his Son to be our Saviour is immeasurably great toward the wicked, ungovernable world." End quote. Stephen Charnock wrote that, quote, "...pure and perfect goodness is only the royal prerogative of God. Goodness is a choice perfection of the divine nature. This is the true and genuine character of God. He is good. He is goodness. Good in himself. Good in his essence. Good in the highest degree." End quote. So we see that throughout history, uh, Christians have affirmed that God is all-good or all-loving. And not surprisingly, you know, some of the most common objections to all of Christianity actually pertain to God's goodness or pertain to God's uh, all-lovingness. So let's examine some of the more common objections to this essential attribute of God as we close. First of all, we have to address the strong Calvinist assertion that God either doesn't love all or that he loves some the elect more than he loves others. Well, it's alleged that Christ only died for those who were elected uh, or predestined to believe in him, but that there is limited atonement. That is, the value of the atonement was sufficient to atone for the sins of the elect, uh, but it's insufficient to atone for anyone else's sins. Now, in response uh, to this assertion uh, of a limited atonement... It's certainly true that the Bible does use terms like we, or our, or us in reference to the atonement. However, when it uses those terms, the Bible is speaking only in reference to those whom the atonement has been applied upon, rather than in reference to whom the atonement was provided for. We affirm that the atonement was sufficient, but it's only efficient to those who freely put their faith in Christ, those who freely put their trust for salvation in the work of Christ on Calvary. Further, the fact uh, is that there are several verses which indicate that the potential application of the atonement is for all. John the Baptist uh, referred to Jesus as the one who would carry away the sins of the world in John chapter 1, verse 29. And John himself wrote something similar when he wrote that Jesus, quote, himself is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. That's from 1 John chapter 2, verse 2. And Paul affirmed the same theology, writing, quote, For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. That's from Romans chapter 5, verse 6. The author of Hebrews writes, quote, But we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. That's Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9. So there's a very clear implication in all of these passages Uh, And others, that the atonement is sufficient and offered or available to all. Clearly, the idea that the atonement was limited in its worth or in its value is not supported by Scripture. A second objection to the all lovingness of God, and this is a big one. Uh, And this is something that we'll get to in the coming months uh, when we get to Romans chapter 9. But um, this other objection stems from Romans chapter 9, verse 13, where Paul refers to when God said, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. And similarly, Romans chapter 9, verse 15 seems to indicate that God will arbitrarily show mercy to some, but not to others. And then verse 22 seems to indicate that he predestines some to destruction, but not others. So it's asserted that these passages seem to indicate that God is not all-loving in regards to salvation. Well, what are we going to do with that? Well, in response, first of all, none of these verses give an indication that God is not all-loving in regards to salvation. The first thing we have to point out is that this passage isn't speaking about electing individuals. It's talking about the election of nations. In the passage that stretches from chapter 9 through chapter 11, Paul is talking about Israel's past, present, and future standing with God. This has nothing to do with individuals whatsoever, and the only way... The only way to draw that conclusion is to take these verses individually, apart from the context of the passage as a whole. And as such, we should note that the election of the nation of Israel was temporal rather than eternal. In other words, Israel was elected or chosen as the nation through which the eternal blessing of salvation through Christ would come to every tribe, tongue, and nation. But it's clear that not all individuals in Israel were elected to salvation, according to uh, chapter 9, verse 6. So that's the first thing that we have to point out. This is talking about nations, not individuals. Secondly, it's significant to note that the word hate, uh, as in uh, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated... This term hate is actually commonly used in the Bible as a figure of speech. Uh, Jesus also told his followers that they have to hate their parents if they're going to follow him. Well, what did he mean by that? Did he mean they have to literally hate their parents? Well, of course not. He just meant that they must love him more than they love their own family or anything else for that matter. And so thus the phrase, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated, indicates that Jacob had God's favor. It doesn't mean that God literally hated Esau. Again, however, this is pertaining to nations, not individuals. Third, uh, those mentioned in chapter 9, verse 22, who are said to be predestined to destruction, aren't predestined to destruction against their will. Instead, they're predestined to destruction because they willed destruction over eternal life. God's desire, according to Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9, was to have men repent Uh, And God waited with much long-suffering for them to change their ways. Those who didn't, those who would not accept Christ as their Savior, would be destined or predestined for God, since he sees all things in one eternal moment, Uh, but they would be... uh, predestined for destruction in accordance with their will. Fourth, and most importantly, to take this passage out of context and apply it to individuals rather than nations is actually contrary to numerous passages which indicate that God is all loving? How do we reconcile the idea that God is all loving with the idea, uh, the the false idea, that God only wants to save those whom He loves or those whom He has elected or predestined? Well, we don't solve that uh, that uh, discrepancy by saying that God loves the elect more, which is actually what some strong Calvinists out there will do. That's their method of resolution. No, we resolve it by examining it. We examine the context of the passages which appear to be in conflict. And when that's done properly, we see that the ninth chapter of Romans in no way supports the idea that God loves only some or that God loves some more than others. Now, a third and final objection to God's all-lovingness, and you guys have heard this one before. Uh, This pertains to the problem of the existence of evil in the world. The objection is that if God is both all-loving and all-powerful, there would be no evil in the world. If he were all-powerful, the reasoning goes, he could rid the world of evil. If he were all-loving, he would want to rid the world of all evil. And so thus it's argued that either God is not all-powerful or he's not all-loving. And if you've been listening to our ministry for a while now, you've probably heard this one brought up several times. This is a very common objection. You get it a lot of different places, and we've discussed this numerous times. But you know, in response, God is both all-powerful and all-loving. However, God cannot remain consistent with his loving nature and simultaneously will anything less than the ultimate good for his creatures. Part of that ultimate good is having free will. In other words. Because God is all-loving, we have free will. Because there's free will, there's evil. However, the point has to be made that the Bible does say that a day will come when evil will be defeated. And so thus, we would say, we'd counter-argue, that because God is all-loving, he wants to defeat evil. And because he's all-powerful, he will defeat evil. Just because he hasn't yet doesn't mean he won't in the future. He has to allow evil in order to defeat it. So anyway, hope this clears up uh, this issue for you guys and gives you guys something to think about uh, when we're talking about the loving nature of God, particularly in regards to strong Calvinism, but uh, also with this final objection, which, uh, more times than not, will be one of the primary objections raised against the theistic worldview. So anyway, if you guys have any questions, you can always email me. My email is cleanslate.ministries at hotmail.com. I'm always happy to clarify or uh, take additional questions that maybe we didn't cover here today. So anyway, thank you guys so much for listening today. God bless you guys. I'll see you next time on BibleStudyPodcast.org. Keep growing closer to Jesus.